invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. And our text today will be verses 13 through 22. Job 1, 13 through 22. I want you to follow along. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. The text says this. Now there was a day when his sons, this is Job's sons, and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in, the oldest, in their older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck down the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Father, we pause with reverence before you and before this great book with such important themes and hopeful conclusions that I pray that the content of this book in these next weeks will be a defining moment in the lives of some people who you really love, whose hearts are really hurting. I pray, Lord, that it would be a time of preparation for some who in this year will face difficulties they just don't know it yet. And that when in your kind but hard providence you send them challenges that their faith and trust will kick into gear. And like a knee-jerk reaction, they will know what to do because they've thought carefully and prayed deeply and listened intently to what you say in this book. We quit too easy. We throw in the towel. We say things about you that are not true and at times blasphemous because of suffering. And I pray that you would raise from College Park 
a group of people who will suffer well and cling to Christ when it feels as though everything has given way. So Lord, help us. Help me to hear your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Suffering is personal. It creates emotions and pain that are beyond belief. Suffering is perplexing. It doesn't make sense. And at times it just seems so random. Where did that come from? Why is this happening? What's the point? Suffering is a paradox. It it leaves things in tension. It it doesn't resolve things. It, It asks more questions. It creates more problems than it resolves and solves. You see, suffering is like nothing else in that it is a convergence of three loaded words. Personal, perplexing, paradox. You converge those three words on a soul, and it is a very challenging thing to deal with. In February 2003, I had just finished listening to a biographical message on the life of Adoniram Judson, a missionary who had given his life for the cause of Christ in Burma. He'd lost many children, buried, I think, three wives. And at the end of the message, I was overwhelmed with the sense that God was speaking to me, and I didn't know why, and I was a little afraid of what I felt like he was saying. I wrote in my journal after that, Lord, I don't know how to suffer. My life's so easy. I don't know what it means to deal with hardship. remember coming out of that auditorium with the sense that God... It just put me on a journey and I didn't know where it was going. Remember my wife asking me, are, are you okay? And I said to her, I don't know. Almost to the date, one year later, February 2004, my wife was nine months pregnant, sound asleep, and she wakes me up at about 5.30 in the morning, and says, Mark, I'm scared. I haven't felt the baby move all night. She went into the shower. I pulled back the covers, and I dropped to my knees. And I said, Lord, please, I don't want to suffer this way. But the Lord had already chosen our path. February 17, 2004, many of you know, some of you may not, we gave birth to a stillborn daughter. Her name was Sylvia. I see it all now. I can see it more clearly. 
the preparation, the message, the date. But her stillbirth and then the, the struggle to conceive a child were the most difficult moments of our life. Never knew such pain. Feelings that I didn't even know it was possible for a human soul to feel. The moments were filled with innumerable paradoxes. Questions that I couldn't resolve. Perplexing questions about life and death and suffering and sin and God's sovereignty. And in the midst of that, just deep, deep personal pain. And yet in the midst of that season, it was one of the most formative moments in our lives. We learned how to live in a world of pain beyond belief and divine sovereignty beyond comprehension and how to just live in there. We learned to eclipse perplexing questions with a trust rooted in the sure word of the scriptures. We we learned to trust that God would never give us something that we couldn't handle. And more than anything, we learned that the mysterious purposes of suffering are not solved by asking why. They are only answered by asking who. I'm not an expert on suffering. And just so you know, I'm probably going to cry for seven weeks. hope that's okay. (laughs) Woe be to the person who deals with suffering without tears. I'm not an expert on suffering, and there's some of you in this room who have suffered far more than I have. Far more. What I do know is simply what God taught us through that season and what it is that Job helps us to know, and it's this, that when it comes to suffering, the answer to the who question is far more helpful than the answer to the why question. Learned to release why and stop Demanding an answer. Still, instead, just to cling to Christ. And say, I know whom I have believed. William Cooper, in his hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, nails it. Here's what he says. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. What that means... You try and figure out what he's doing, you won't be able to. You can't see clearly because you're not God, that's why. 
Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. Here's your trust. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. He's the only one worthy of interpreting his own works. And thus, that is the matter, the answer that we find in the book of Job. The answer to the who question is the ground of steadfastness in suffering. That's what Job's about. Let me say it again. The answer to the who question is the ground of steadfastness in suffering. And what we're going to do is over the next seven weeks look at this matter of the book of Job. And my prayer for us is that you will come to the conclusion that the who question is far more satisfying than the why question. So why this book now? I've not chosen a study of the book of Job lightly. It is massive. 42 chapters. John Calvin spent 159 messages on this book. That's crazy. It's a complicated book. It's got a lot of tough challenges, a lot of hard questions, a lot of truths that are held in paradox. It deals with the naughty subject of suffering. And the problem with suffering is when you're in it, you think you're an expert on it. So it's personal. It's it's perplexing and it's a paradox. And that makes this subject really challenging to deal with. But we need it. And here's why. Three reasons. Number one, suffering is a common human experience. Everyone in this room, everyone in Columbus, everyone in our worship venue will experience suffering in this lifetime. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And then he said, do not fear, I have overcome the world. And the reason that we all experience suffering is because we live in a sinful and fallen world. And the cry of our hearts is, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, remove us from this sin-cursed world. But until then, we deal with a sinful, fallen world. And implicit in that sinful world is sufferings at many levels. The second thing is that suffering well is a direct application of the message of the book of Colossians. So you might think it's strange that we go from Colossians to Job, but it's not strange. Because the theme of Colossians is that Jesus is the core. He's preeminent in everything. That was the truth that we celebrated and sang. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything, including evil, suffering, and pain. And you can say that you believe in the preeminence of Christ. You can say that you believe He's the core. You can say that you believe He's Lord. But there is no other time in life when that belief is tested. Like when suffering comes. To believe in the preeminence of Jesus means that I submit to His will. He's Lord. I'm His servant. And the fundamental position of my life is one of submission. And suffering presses that and tests it. Or let me 
Put it this way, does God have a right to do something that is hard and painful and confusing in your life? See, it is one thing to confess allegiance to the preeminence of Jesus. It is another to cling to Him with joy when your world is collapsing. And you can say, you are my Lord. Third reason, suffering tests our belief and our faith. Pain creates some really difficult questions. It creates some really powerful emotions. And like nothing else, it tests the substance of what we believe to be true. James 1 calls believers to count it all joy when we suffer through various trials. And unfortunately, that seems like light years away from where we often live, doesn't it? There's many examples of people whose belief and faith collapsed under the weight of suffering. Anything from a hard providence that comes and someone then becomes angry and embittered against God. This attitude of, how in the world could you let this happen to me? So week after week they show up and their heart is shallow and small and the spirit is quenched because their heart in the inner workings is angry because God has done something that they don't agree with. Or worse, we all know people who have completely abandoned the faith and said, I cannot love a God who has allowed such evil to take place. I will not serve a God like this. And so my urgent goal in this series is to try and help you stand strong in sorrow. I feel that it's my job as a pastor as to how to teach you how to suffer. To strengthen the the infrastructure of your faith so that when suffering comes you won't crack, you won't fail, you won't give in, but you'll be strong. You will learn how to weep and worship. You will learn how to take the platform of pain and turn it as a platform of worship. And there is no more important book in the Bible on the subject of suffering than this one. It will create new categories. It will challenge some things that you believe to be true that aren't. And in the end, I hope that it will help you to say with Job, the Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My goal in this series is nothing short of having you make the choice that when hardship comes, that you, like Job, say, I choose to bless and not curse. The book of Job is shrouded with mystery. There's a lot of things we don't know about the book. We don't know who the author is. We don't know when it was written. We don't know about the background. We don't even know what Job means. The name could mean enemy of God. That's how he felt at times. The name could mean, where is my father? The book isn't even about the nation of Israel. It's not about an Israelite. The, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us is a man who lives in Uz. 
And we're not even sure where that is. It seems to be somewhere southeast of Israel, but we don't really know. What we do know is that the author was a Hebrew. He was a Jewish person. Probably a, a wise man, a sage, writing to try and explain the purpose and the meaning of suffering in this life. We think he's a Jewish person because he quotes the Old Testament scriptures so many times. And while we don't know a whole lot about the background, the setting, the dynamics that went into writing, we do know the purpose of the book. And the purpose of the book is to make a clear case for God's righteousness in the midst of innocent suffering. That's the aim. It is to make a case that in the midst of suffering and difficult, there is a category called innocent suffering. And what Job will show us is that not all suffering is a direct result of a specific sin. And you can't always say X plus Y equals Z in God's view of suffering and hardship. It's important to understand the overarching plot line of the book. I want to give you an overview of this book so you can see the flow and development of the message. And I'll make you this deal. I'll trade you the overflow of this book for a Kleenex right now. (laughs) Somebody close by? John, is it used? Okay, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Some of you are like, finally he got one. Okay. Here's the overview. Well, the reason that I do this is we're not going to go through this book um, verse by verse all the way through. We're going to go to particular sections and we'll, we'll dive into it and really examine it expositionally. But we're not going to go verse by verse like every verse by every verse. And, and the reason is I'm, it's this is kind of me to do this. Let me tell you why. Because there are certain sections in this book that are so repetitive in terms of the, the, the statement of Job's friends that literally you want to kill them because you're so annoyed with them. And so it is kind of me to not cause you to sin in that regard. The other reason is that you need to understand where we're going because at the end of the day, this, this message series, I think, will create some tensions. There will be moments when you're just like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't understand that. You're going to leave some Sundays without all the dots connected, without everything tied up. Tension is good in that respect. It makes us think. It drives us deeper. Trite answers and shallow little explanations are not often very helpful. But what I want to do is spare you seven weeks of tension. And try to help you understand where this is going to land and what the conclusion is. Sort of like reading the back of the book so you know how to follow the plot line. It begins with the testing of a righteous man in chapter 1 and verse 1. We have two scenes. The first is, is Job where he is... Um, we see him on the earth. He's a land in the land of Uz. This is a man who was righteous and blameless. And you get the sense of, of, of Job's prosperity. He had all sorts of, of, of cattle and wonderful home with lots of children. The idea is this guy's got like favor resting upon him. He's blessed by God. 
Then there's the second scene in chapter 1, verse 6, where you, you're, you're brought into the courtroom of heaven and you, you're, you witness this conversation between God and Satan, where God asked Satan where he was going and he told him from roaming the earth. And then he says, have you considered my servant Job? And there is this conversation between the two of them where Satan says, well, yeah, he's, he's righteous because you blessed him. I mean, look, he's full of everything you could possibly imagine. Take it away, he'll curse you. And then God says, well, let's see. And you as the reader know that there's two scenes. You know the, the real battle up in heaven, and you see Job's calamity, but Job only sees one. And you as the reader see the full orbed picture, and we watch go, Job go through his sufferings, and the reason you want to smack his friends is because you know they're dead wrong. And the hard part is that this man is being tested. You, the reader, know the story. You know the real plot line, the plot line above the plot line. But Job does not. He's an innocent man who is righteous and suffering, and he has no idea why. Next, tough questions and unhelpful friends. The bulk of the book, chapter 3 through chapter 37, is three different cycles of speeches where his friends come and at first, they're really helpful. And the reason they're helpful is because they came and they said nothing. <laughs> Learn from that. One of the best things you can do when a person is suffering is not try and give some silly, trite explanation. Well, maybe people get saved from it. Well, what if they don't? Then what do I do? Or maybe God will give you another child. Would that take away from the pain here? Well, maybe this and maybe this and maybe that. Just learn from Job's friends. They got it right when they said nothing. Nothing more comforting than all the world in your personal presence. Arm around a suffering friend and all you say is, I'm sorry and I love you. got into trouble when they started opening their mouth. They started trying to make sense of Job's suffering. And their conclusion was that Job's suffering had to be related to a sin that he had committed. And there's three cycles of speeches in their attempt to prove that all suffering is punishment and all blessing is reward. A reward for righteousness. In other words, in their mind, they saw life in two categories. Suffering comes because of punishment for sin, and blessing comes because of a reward for righteousness. And understand that those things are actually true, but there's a third category that they didn't realize was in the mix. And the problem is that the speeches develop further and further, and Job gets increasingly frustrated with his friends and increasingly defiant and pessimistic. It's sad. It's a tragedy. You watch him. And you want to jump in the book and say, Job, don't worry about them. They're losers. There's a battle going on in heaven. You're the man, Job. Just persevere. But you can't. You're stuck. You're an observer. The irony of the speeches, and this is a key to unlocking the book, is that Job's friends are wrong, but they argue their case very well. They're dead wrong. But when you read them, you're like, oh, that, that could be true. No, it's not true. Those guys are losers. That, that's not going to work. No, that, no that, that makes sense. No, it's not. And there's this tension. 
they, they're wrong, but they argue their case well. And in Job's case, here's his problem. He is right. He's suffering not because of a specific sin, but he argues his case poorly. So his friends are wrong, and they argue their case well. Job is right, and he argues his case poorly. And that's the key that unlocks the book. Job eventually even becomes indignant with everyone, including God. And then in chapter 32, we're introduced to a new friend. His name is Elihu. And he suggests a category that no one has considered. And the category is that the suffering of the righteous could have a good purpose. He suggests that the suffering of the righteous is a token of God's love, not his enmity. That it's not a punishment for sins, but rather a refinement of righteousness that suffering comes. This is a category that doesn't fit the friend's theology. So they're right theologically, but their application of it is wrong. And Job is right, but his application of it in his life is wrong. And Elihu comes to introduce this third category in this two-dimensional world. We now have a third dimension, and God himself will bring that third category into full clarity. He sees that suffering is not the preparation for destruction, but protection from destruction. Look at some things that Elihu says. He says, Behold, God is mighty and doesn't despise any. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. That's a new thought. He delivers them by their affliction and he opens their ear by adversity. Now Elihu talks in in minuscule and elementary form what God fully develops in the latter part of the book. Verse 22, Behold, God is exalted in His power. Who is a teacher like Him? Who has prescribed for Him His way? Or who can say, You have done wrong? And Elihu gives us this understanding, at least in its introductory form, that there is a place for righteous suffering. Therefore, suffering is not, as Job's three friends think, a proof of Job's wickedness, and nor is it, as Job suggests, due to some randomness in God. Job's conclusion? God's just random. Job's friends' conclusions? You sinned. And Elihu enters and says, no, suffering of the righteous has a good and God-centered purpose. That brings us then to chapter 38, which is the who question. In this moment, God now intervenes. And the text says that God answers Job from a whirlwind. Now, whirlwind, think tornado, think hurricane, think huge display, think Job, if he had any hair left, blowing in the wind as he hears God say, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man, and I will question you and make it known to me. And you make it known to me. So God now engages Job, and the next five chapters are a blistering but gracious interrogation. You read those chapters and go, Ooh, ooh, mountain goats, ooh, he... Stuck it to him. Ostriches. Depths of the sea. Foundations of the earth. What am I talking about? 
God uses mountain donces, horses and seas and foundations of the earth and inquiring about Job's knowledge of those to demonstrate to Job that he is God, Job is not. And so he says things like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Did you give the horses might? When, when, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Are you a father to reign? Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Answer me, Job. And what is stunning is that question by question, Job is interrogated by God in order to help him to see clearly that there are things that only God can do. And his role is to be a submissive, humble man. And the result is that Job is left speechless and humbled. Verse 5 of chapter 42, he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Suffering combined with God's call to see His majesty in light of what it is now converges upon Job's mind, and he says, I heard you, but now I see you. That's what suffering does. He learns the beauty and the satisfaction of the who question. He learns that God is worthy of faith and trust, even though His ways are often mysterious. He never gets the answer. God never tells him. The, the strange thing about the book is God never says, Job, this is about some discussion and, and, and argument and contest that Satan and I have had. He doesn't tell him any of that. Instead, he tells him about his own character. God describes himself to Job. And here's why. Because the substance of God's infinite majesty is a far more satisfying solution than a simple answer as to what's really going on. That there is a level of sovereignty and providence ruling over the world that your little mind will never understand. And it is the joy of our hearts and the hope of our souls to rest in that divine providence and say, I don't know what you're doing and I don't even know why, but I know what you are like and therefore I can trust you. If Job had done what his friends had said and confessed his sin, alleged sin, to get his riches back, it would have proved Satan's case. See? He just did that to get all his stuff back. He just, he just confessed because he wants his things back. Job held fast to his integrity, dealt with the issue, the tension of what was happening in his life, and refused to give in to trite answers. And the result is... In chapter 42, we come back to prose. Prose at the beginning, poetry in the middle, prose at the end. It concludes with a narrative account in which God brings a measure of resolution. He rebukes Job's friends, telling them that they were wrong, and even tells them, you need to have Job offer sacrifices for you. That's not a good day for those friends. You notice in the text, the lie, he was not rebuked. He's, he's not even mentioned. Probably because he got it right, it just wasn't fully developed. And God vindicates Job by saying that what he has spoken is right. That he is innocent. And then he restores all of the lost fortune. Chapter 42, verse 12 says, Blessing the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And we see double cattle, double um, productivity, 
return of children. And the sun sets on the book with this beautiful picture of Job having passed the test. And you as a reader gain a new understanding of what suffering is really all about. And through the book, we see that the righteous do suffer. That the categories of sin equals punishment and righteousness equals blessing, although true, technically are elementary. And there's another category. That there are moments in life when there's suffering and the purpose isn't tied necessarily directly to a particular issue in one's life. It introduces us, this book, to difficult subjects and tough questions and issues and tension. And the book, in the end, leaves us with a lofty view of the sovereignty of God and doesn't resolve all the questions. It leaves it right there, I think, to humble us so we wouldn't be able to say, I got it all figured out. The righteous do suffer. And we don't always know why. D.A. Carson says... Job teaches us that at least in this world there will always be always remain some mysteries to suffering. And he teaches us to exercise faith. Not blind, thoughtless submission to an impersonal status quo, but faith in the God who has graciously revealed himself to us. The book of Job calls us to embrace the fact that when we suffer, there will be mystery. And the question is whether or not we are content with the who question rather than the why question. Or let me put it this way. Is what you know about God big enough to handle what you don't know in this life? That's an important question. Is what you know about God big enough Is your understanding of the majesty, the glory, the preeminence of Jesus big enough to handle what you don't know in life? Or do you operate in a world where everything has to make sense to you? It's got to fit with my understanding of fairness. It's got to fit with my understanding of right and wrong. It's got to fit in my categories. Job blows the categories out of the water. In the same way that the cross of Christ blew the categories of fairness out of the water. We ought to thank our God for categories that don't fit our little minds because if you could have seen the plan for the cross and the unfairness of rolling upon Jesus, the sinless Son of God, all of the works of righteousness which we have done and we poured it out on Him and God placed it on Him, you and I would have said, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not just. And that's exactly what it was and it was the ground of our salvation. So true, Jesus isn't mentioned in this book. But you see this book so much more clearly when you see it through the shadow of the cross. So how does Job help us? Let me give you some ways that I think that this book is very helpful. The first is this. It shows us that suffering, while mysterious, is never pointless. There are some of you who are here today, and part of the problem is you think that mystery cannot exist with having a purpose. That in order for it to have purpose, it's got to make sense. I want to give you a new category. 
mystery and purpose coexisting. Or the promise that all things work together for good. We're not told how or what, but we are told in the latter part of Romans 8 that all things make us conform to the image of Christ. And one of the problems that we face in suffering is many of us would rather have an easy life than Christ-likeness. And the battle in suffering is to treasure Christ-likeness and the promise of being conformed to His image, even if it means difficulty and suffering. I remember many times Sarah and I would have this conversation where I would say to her, I am so glad the Lord did not give me a choice in the death of our daughter, because if He gave me a choice, Christ-likeness and righteousness or an alive daughter, I do not trust what I would choose. Suffering has a point, always. It's just not always clear. And this is probably one of the most important things that you can learn. And I hope for some of you who are younger, you're, you're coming up into high school or college or you're single. Lamentations 3 says it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. I hope to spare you from lifetime of bitterness and anger against God that can tank your soul, that you'd learn this lesson well. And it is that we have to understand that suffering, while mysterious, is never without a point. Sure, it's hard. Hebrews 12 says that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The problem is, if we're honest, we'd rather not have the pain, and we would rather not learn righteousness this way. We want to learn righteousness our way. Which is why, to really understand what's happening in this passage, and to see it talked about, you often have to go back a former generation, a hundred years, to get people who really understand these issues because we live in a culture of quick quitters of fairness rugged individualism i got to be able to see how it works for me and suffering doesn't work like that the second reason or second way the book helps us is it reminds us that sorrow and tough questions are not signs of a weak faith don't confuse joy with giddiness. Don't confuse sorrow with deep despair, sinful despair. Don't confuse honest questions with blasphemy. Suffering is not easy, and trite answers and silly solutions that mask the pain or run away from tough questions are not helpful. The discipline of the Lord, Hebrews 12 says, is painful and not pleasant. And the Bible is filled with examples of people who poured out their hearts in lament, in pain, and didn't do it sinfully. That they poured out their hearts, and sometimes they run into believers who are just, they're trying to comfort people in their sorrow. It's like, be happy, just be encouraged. And there's moments when you can't be encouraged, but it doesn't mean you're not joyful. There's a difference between happiness and deep biblical joy. Some of the happiest Let me change that. Some of the most joyful moments of my life were some of the darkest hours emotionally. When God stripped me of everything that I had and I felt like all I have is you.
Psalm 13. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's real sorrow. And before you chide your friend because he's or she is saying things that are just hard, or maybe they're just uncomfortable for you, so you want them to stop saying them, so you can stop feeling so much discomfort, I want to remind you that it was our Savior who on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Poured out his heart. He knew the answer. It's not a question. It's a statement. Why have you forsaken me? Pour out his heart. So sorrow and tough questions are not a sign of a weak faith, which should be really encouraging to some of you who are in the middle of a dark, dark, dark moment of your life, and you may have people around you telling you, come on, just just get over it, just move on, let's go, come on. And the reality is your sorrow makes them uncomfortable. They, They may want you to stop because they want their own discomfort to stop. And there's others who just don't know what to say, and it's it's hard. And I want to just encourage you that the moments of difficulty that you're in are some of the sweetest moments of painful grace you'll ever have in your lifetime. And although it's hard, it's not a sign of weak faith to experience sorrow and have tough questions. You can sin in sorrow, and you can sin with your questions. Which is why Job also says, I repent. And we'll see that and hopefully learn what is the difference. Third, this book, as I've already said, calls us to live on who and not why. So knowing that suffering has a purpose is one thing. Okay? Knowing it's got a purpose, Mark, right. That, that's not this. This is different. Living on who and not why is different. The book shows us that Job is suffering because of this divine conversation between God and Satan, and yet God never tells him, and the only thing he does is point Job to himself, and the call of this book is not for explanations or justification. Instead, the call of this book is to simply trust. And in order to suffer well, listen, we have to let go of our why question. It's stunning to me how hard this is for us. We, we want explanations. We want justifications. We want an explanation. We want a reason. We want it to make sense. And the best thing that we can do, instead of clinging to the vain hope of an explanation that makes sense or one that we even agree with, is instead to be able to trust in the mercy of the grace of God. This book is a call for us to say, I release the why and I embrace the who. I release my need of a justification. I release my need of an explanation. I release my need of you to tell me why you've done this to me. And instead, in humble submission, I say, I don't know why you're doing this, but I trust your heart. These are the questions kids ask in suffering. Why did God take our little sister, Dad, And it is hopeful to little hearts to say, Buddy, Daddy doesn't know. But we do know that our God is a merciful and gracious God. And He, Son, would never do anything that was unkind or hard. 
unkind, hard, in the fact that it would make our faith collapse. Fourth, it pleads with us to choose to bless. The two most important verses in the entire book are Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's one. That should be underlined. The other most important verse is at the end, I have heard of you. This is chapter 42, verse 5. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And what Job understood here was the value of blessing the hard providence of his life, even though he didn't understand all the reasons why. So God does give us hard things, but they don't crush us. That's the difference. And that is essentially what I'm calling you to do today, or to prepare to do, is that you would choose to bless the suffering. Maybe looking at it from the past and saying, I choose to bless the immorality of my spouse. I choose to bless the abuse as a child. I choose to bless cancer. I choose to bless the loss of my job. I choose to bless the infertility that I hate. Why would you do that? Because at the bottom of your heart there is this rest and assurance that even though He slay me, yet I will bless Him. It means that no matter what the enemy throws at you, he can throw all hell at you, and it will not separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He can throw anything he wants, and you, in clinging to Christ, will be clung to the heart of Christ, as he says to you, keep trusting me, and I will keep you trusting The defining moment in my life was about eight hours before our daughter was born and I was alone in a bathroom. I'm washing my face. I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I don't even recognize the image in the mirror. I can't believe what I look like. Such grief, pain. And I looked in the mirror and I said this, I bless you, stillbirth for what you will teach me about God. And that became a defining moment to choose to say, I don't, I don't know how it's all going to work out. And for some of you, it's not just about blessing the past. For some of you, it's about blessing the future. You're right in the middle of a difficulty. Or it's right around the corner. You just don't know about it. And for you, the answer is is not to find the reason why, but instead to be prepared that when difficulty comes, that you anchor your soul to Jesus and say, I will bless you, pain and difficulty and evil. I will bless you for what you will teach me about God. And in that moment, I stake my claim on Romans 8 more than what I feel, more than my ability to understand it, more than my ability to explain it or for it all to make sense of me. I can't figure it out, but I know what this text says and I choose to bless. What is it for you? 
What is it today that you need an explanation for? What is it that you need a, a, a reason for? What is it that you need a justification? For some of you, your hearts are filled with anger. I once had a nurse tell me, you know, it's okay for you to be angry with God. And I said to her, I, I, know, I know what you're saying and I know that you mean well, but how in the world could I be angry with God? He's owed me a thing. He owes me a child. I invite you to release your need of those explanations. I do not, I do not invite you to forgive God. That's blasphemy. But instead to trust Him. That He knows what He's doing, that He is good and kind and gracious, that His plans are always good, He always has a point, and even the most difficult thing you ever walk to, it has purpose. You just can't see it. You see, suffering is personal. It's perplexing. It's, it's, it's paradoxical. But make no mistake about it. Suffering is always, 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 always filled with God-centered purpose. And therefore, on that promise, we can say, I choose to bless. So help us, Lord. Some this morning who that's the reason why they're here is because you and your gracious plan have brought them here to lovingly and kindly remind them that you are Lord and we are not. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters whose hearts just ache under deep pain in the past, unfair things that have happened, injustices that have been done, all of which, yes, you could have stopped. But in your mysterious and wise providence, you didn't. For purposes that we will not fully understand, And we ask today for a robust understanding of Christ so that our lives could be centered on Him and not on explanations that we must have. Help us to trust You, Lord. And thank You that the greatest display of this tension and the beauty of it is found in the cross of Christ. And so we pray you would bring us back to the cross. And we ask this in Jesus' name.